What is the point of all of our trouble and why does life suck sometimes? Solomon becomes the richest man in history and then he throws it all away. Also, God judges his wasted influence. All this and more as we continue our year with Solomon. I'm Philip Jackson and this is the Married Now What podcast. Okay, today is the last day, last day of the year with Solomon. So we're going to close out uh, the theme for the year. And um, well, a couple of things before I get started. The first is, on January 2nd, our schedule is going to change a little bit. We're going to um, start a little bit earlier. Uh, well, I guess we're going to let out a little bit earlier. I know that when you have little ones and you're trying to scramble all that stuff in the morning, it can be difficult. So we're still going to, technically we start at 9 o'clock, but um, we've had babies and we know that's stressful and difficult to wrangle them. So um, we'll usually start about 9.15, but we're going to start worship at 10.30 starting on January the 2nd. So we'll be letting out a little bit earlier than we normally have been. The other thing is, next Sunday on the 26th, we're not meeting for Sunday school. We're going to have two services, like normal schedule, but we won't have Sunday school next week. So that allows us to have family time and a little bit of flexibility to be able to do what we need to do with family. So make sure that you note that on your calendar. If you come in here, you can have a great time, 9 o'clock next Sunday morning, but we're not going to have Sunday school. So... All right, we're going to spend some time, we're going to close out Ecclesiastes, and then we're going to spend some time looking at uh, the end of Solomon's life. So if you have your Bibles, turn over to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. And uh, what we're going to see this morning is we're going to see the uh, how Solomon finished. If you remember when we started this journey looking at Solomon and his life, we started by looking at the son of uh, King David, who there was this Game of Thrones about how he became king. His older brother wanted to take uh, the throne from him and tried to play all kinds of political games to steal it from him. And uh, Solomon's mother Bathsheba and the prophet uh, stood up for him and, and defended him, and he was able to, to be seated as the king of Israel. So when he started out, he asked God for a Shema Leib, a listening heart. He said in, in all practicality, he said, if you can give me anything, give me my father's heart so that I can be a man that is defined by his relationship with God. And Solomon started out really well, started out dedicating himself to the law, to what God had promised him, and to be obedient to that. But along the way, he got distracted because he got enticed by pleasure. And so what we're going to see is he's, he's looking back at the entirety of his life. We're going to look at the, the historical account after we look at these last couple of verses in Ecclesiastes 12. But think about Solomon as an old man. He is hunched over his parchment. He has his, his quill and his, his parchment, and he is, he is writing out, reflecting on his life, and he's thinking about all the things that he's done, all the things that have, have culminated in this moment right here. And he's thinking about what God has done in his life. So let's look at these last verses here. We're going to start in verse 9 of Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Talking about, the, about wisdom, he's talking about the, the whole duty of man. He says in verse 9, In addition to being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, and he pondered, searched out, and arranged many proverbs. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. The words of the wise are like goads, and masters of these collections are like driven, driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. But beyond this, my son, be warned, the writings of many books is endless, and excessive study is wearying to the body. A couple of things. So think about this. He's saying that um, the preacher, there's the concept of wisdom, right? We have this, the, we have this tension 
where it's like, I want to know and master everything before I try it because I don't want to look like an idiot, right? I mean, all of us have probably fought this in some form or fashion in our lives where it's like, I don't want to do something, especially in front of people, until I can do it well because I don't want to be a failure. I don't want to look like a failure. And so what happens is we, we have a tendency to just collect wisdom, to just collect information. And what he's saying here is that the, the words of the wise are like, goads. The, a goad is like a long, uh, just a long sharp stick that, that shepherds or farmers would use to prod their animals, usually cattle. If you've ever had to work cattle, you know that they are incredibly dumb and they are incredibly hard to move sometimes. And so they have these sharp sticks called goads and they would sit there and they would prod their cows. I remember growing up working cows with my grandfather in the chute. Sometimes you can't move this 1,500 pound animal to save your life. And so you've got to use everything you can to get them to move. He says the words of the wise are like goads. They prod us and they poke us and they move us, slow, lumbering creatures towards godliness. He says, but it's, but it's more than just uh, collecting these things. Notice they're given by the shepherd. He says that in verse 11. But then he says, uh, but beyond this, beyond like what wisdom actually does, be warned that the writing of many books is endless and excessive study is wearying to the body. What he's, what he's saying here is the lesson is that uh, collecting wisdom is not enough. You can collect as much information, facts and figures about God and ancient Israel as you, as you want. You can be the smartest person technically when it comes to God's word as you want. But if you never actually are someone who does it, you're just going to wear yourself out. It's just going to be, you're going to be having, in the words of Scripture, you're going to have a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. So the idea here is that wisdom is not just something to be collected and thrown into uh, a treasure chest. Wisdom is something to be lived out. And so he concludes in verses 13 and 14. He says the conclusion. When everything has been heard, he says, let's hear the full extent of everything else. Let's sum it up on this one thing. He says, fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act of judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. So the culmination of the entire book of Ecclesiastes, all of, all of Solomon's life is culminated in these two verses right here, verse 13 and 14. He says, if you can remember anything about my life, anything at all, remember this, these, these two things. We are called to love God, to, to fear him, and to obey his commandments. This is going back to the very first commandment that was given in Deuteronomy. Um, let's talk about fear of God. So the fear of God, this is not a, uh, the biblical definition of fear is not something that is, um, that is like a, an understanding of danger, right? If you're, in, if you're in a situation, like say for instance, you are um, driving down the highway and you see someone cutting across lanes of traffic heading straight towards you, you're going to be afraid, right? Because there's danger involved. This is not the fear that he's talking about. This is a fear, the biblical definition of fear is reverence or respect or being in awe. Um, the, um, this includes a healthy understanding of, of danger, yes, but it comes with a respect for authority and power compared to our human constitution. The idea is that when we, are in pro- we, when we properly see God for who he is, we can not only feel the weight of our insignificance, but also we feel the weight of his power and magnificence. So he says, fear God, see God as who he is. Don't elevate yourself to the place to where you think that you're equal with God or that he's your buddy or your companion. 
Jesus said, you are my friends because I have said you're my friends. Not because you've earned it or because you've been elevated to a certain position. I call you this because I love you so deeply. But from our perspective, we need to understand that when we see God, we need to see him as he truly is, not just how we think that he is. So this leads to two responses. Now, to those who are a child of God, Romans 8 says that we can walk into the throne room of grace as co-heirs with Christ. So if you're a child of God, that means to fear him and to know him as who he is, is a place of comfort, a place of security, a place of understanding. But to a person who has defiantly resisted God, his presence, his throne room, is a place of judgment and wrath and fear. The difference is simple. It's the difference between saying, I'm in trouble, my dad's going to find out. Or, I'm in trouble, I need to call my dad. There's two different ways that we see God. Those who are a child of God understand that he is a place of security. He, under his wings are the safest place for us to be able to rest, Psalm 91. But to those who are of the enemy, who are of the darkness, who do not belong to him, his presence is a place of terror because it's a place of accountability. And so we need to properly see uh, fear. So commandments, he says to obey his commandments. Jesus said in Matthew 22, he said, the two greatest commandments are summed up in this. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, that you will love your neighbor as yourself. Upon these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. One of the things that is rampant through wisdom literature that we've seen all this year is that if we are aware of God's word, it illuminates who he is. This idea of, of seeing him clearly and having respect for him and having reverence for him, the only way that we do that and then we know that is through his word. So by reading his word, we learn his magnificence and what that does is that highlights the problem that we are insignificant, right? And so through his word, through his commandments, we actually see God for who he is. Um, you know, what's interesting is that the number one challenge that Christians have is spending time in God's word. Have you ever noticed that? That you can find time for everything else, but somehow finding time for God's word is always just right outside your grasp. It seems like that is the hardest thing. Spending time in God's word and praying. And so what we do is, is consider the consequences here. We know God by spending time in his word. His word says that is how we learn about him. No other way. Now, can God appear in front of you and give you a vision? That is within his power to do that. But he has chosen in his word to reveal himself through this book right here. So if you don't spend any time in this book, you're not going to know him. So what do we do? We come up with excuses. What are excuses? They are lies with a wrapping that is a reason. It's a lie wrapped with a reason. Oh, I didn't have time to spend time in my Bible today or this week or this month or this year but you know what, it's okay because I listen to praise music on the way to work. You know what, I, I didn't spend time in God's Word, so I just prayed. I didn't turn the radio on on the way to work or on my way home or I take five minutes and I spend time praying before I walk into the office. If we don't spend time actually in God's Word, are we learning about who He is? No. If we don't spend time in God's Word, are we actually learning about how He relates to us? No. 
everything has to, be, has to come through his word. So he says the two greatest things that are, that are gonna define your life are number one, to fear God. And the only way that you fear God is through knowing his commandments. So let's talk about how he lived this out. Well, he finishes by saying that this applies to every person. Nobody's exempt. And the reason why is in verse, four, verse 12, where he said, or verse 14, where he says, for God will bring every act into judgment. There's gonna be a divine account for everything that we do in our lives. So take your, let's, let's look at Solomon's life. Turn your Bibles over to 1 Kings chapter 10. In 1 Kings chapter uh, 10, we see the, the final moments of Solomon's life. God kind of gives an account of what happened with Solomon, his blessings, the way that God uh, gave him riches. And some of the descriptions of, of his wealth are just ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous. So how can a person who sets out to have, have the heart of his father, David, turn out to be someone who gets lost in life? Some of this is just ridiculous. Even if you adjusted this for inflation and for present day, Solomon would still be the most wealthy person that's ever lived. So I'm going to read several sections of Scripture here, and then we're going to talk about each individual piece. So beginning in verse 14 of, cha- of 1 Kings chapter 10, uh, Scripture goes through and it documents all of the things that... Um, that he had. So think about this in his personal income. Starting in verse 14, he says, Now the weight of gold which came to, into Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. That's the equivalent of 25 tons. 25 tons of gold a year. That's a lot of, that's a lot of stuff, right? A lot of gold. Now look at verse 15. Besides that, from the traders and the wares of the merchants and all the kings of, of the Arabs and the governors of the country... That's his personal income. That doesn't count his other elected officials, the other favors that people brought, other things like that. That's just the gold. 25 tons of gold every year. That's insane. Okay, continue on. Verse 16. King Solomon made 200 large shields of beaten gold using 600 shekels of gold on each large shield. A shekel is, is, about, uh, is about 15 pounds. Um. Verse 18, moreover, the king made a great throne of ivory and overlaid it with refined gold. There were six steps onto the throne and a round top on the throne at its rear and arms on each side of its seat and two lions standing beside the arms. Twelve lions were standing there uh, on the six steps on the one side and on the other. Nothing like it was made for any other kingdom. Okay, so think about this. I'm not a very good artist. There's actually better artist renderings of this online, but um, this is the depiction. You had a throne here with an arch top, and you had lions on either side, and you had a series of, of six steps, two, three, four, five, six, and then you had lions at every, on every step representing the 12 tribes of, of Israel. All of these were made of ivory, and covered in gold. We're talking about lavishness like you cannot even imagine. Palaces covered in gold. 25 tons of gold every year. When people walked in to see Solomon, he was incredible to behold. This is amazing. So verse 21 all King Solomon's drinking vessels were, gold, were of gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were, pure, were of pure gold. 
None was silver. It was not considered valuable in the days of Solomon. For the king had set... Sorry, I can't read. For the king had at sea the ships of Tarshish uh, which with the ships of Hiram, of Hiram, once every three years the ships of Tarshish came bringing gold and silver, ivory and apes and peacocks. So King Solomon became greater than all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. All the earth was seeking the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. They brought every man his gift, articles of silver and gold, garments, weapons, spices, horses and mules, so much year by year. Now Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen, and he had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen, and he stationed them in the chariot cities and with the, king, uh, and with the king in Jerusalem. The king made silver as common as stones in Jerusalem, and he made cedars as plentiful as sycamore trees that are in the lowland. Also Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt and Kew, and the king's merchants procured them from Kew for a price. A chariot was imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver, and a horse for 150. And by the same means they exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and to the kings of the Armenians. Or Armenians. So think about this. Solomon is making crazy money. He says, so the chariot at this point in history is the most uh, advanced military item in the world. Think about it in, in this regard. Like, he's buying a chariot and a horse for 600 shekels of silver and, uh, well, basically, 750 shekels of silver. Silver is so common, he's like paying for this stuff with rocks. He's paying for the most elaborate, incredible military assets with the equivalent of rocks. This is incredible. The Egyptians were known for their prowess in breeding horses. They were known for their prowess, their military excellence, through their chariot warfare. This guy is the man in every form and fashion. He, he not only has chariots, but he has designated cities just for his horses and his chariots. Absolutely astounding. He used gold so lavishly to decorate that gold was the commodity that everybody used. He was known throughout the world for his wealth and his wisdom, and everyone brought him gifts to hear what he had to say. I mean, this guy was incredible. Well, let's, let's turn the page. Look at, verse, look at chapter 11. So Solomon has all this stuff around him. He has all these, these material things coming his way. And look what it does to his heart. Starting in verse 1 in chapter 11. It says, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, You shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you, for they will, we will, they will surely turn your heart away from their gods, away after their gods. Solomon held fast to these in love. He had 700 wives princesses and 300 concubines and his wives turned his heart away for when Solomon was old his wives turned his heart away after other gods and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been for Solomon went after Ashtoreth the goddess of the Sidonians and after Milcom the detestable idol of the Ammonites Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord fully as David his father had done then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, 
for Chemosh and the detestable idol of Moab on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem, and for Moloch, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. Thus he did all for his foreign wives, who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Solomon's downfall was found in a couple of things. It says here that uh, in verses 1 and 2 that he had a love for these women. That's translated from Hebrew. This is a... um, This is a passionate sexual desire. Solomon's downfall was driven by his sexual appetite. He got to the point to where he was obsessed with sex. He was obsessed with pleasure. He was obsessed with anything, any kind of pleasure that he could chase after. The fancy word that describes that is hedonism. Hedonism is the pursuit of pleasure. The idea that I can get what I want, I can do what I want, and there's no consequences. And so he began to give his heart fully to these people. It says that he clung to them. Um, This is, uh, the language here means that he was loyal to them and was driven at the expense of his faith. The idea that this was his passion was women. And so he he, uh, threw himself in there. His desire for pleasure was the driving force of his life. And here's, the th- here's why this is so uh, evil. is because at this point in history, we have this different, branded differently now, but at this point in history, most pagan worship was driven by sexual uh, intercourse. It was driven through sexual deviance. If you were going to worship a pagan god, you did it by having sex at a temple. You, uh, you did it by giving yourself and your flesh to pleasure. And what is, what is astounding is that, you know, look at the difference. The pagan culture says, give us your body and we will give you pleasure. You chase after what you want because you deserve it. But Christ says, lay down your life, give it up, and you will have what you were created to enjoy, which is a relationship with me. One is driven by by uh, selfish indulgence. The other is driven by sacrifice and submission. And so the pagan culture at the time was enticing him, was pulling him aside. The transition of Solomon's heart happened over time. Look at verse 4. He says, For for when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, and the heart of David, as, as his father David had been. He followed God when he was young, but as he allowed pleasure and comfort to lead him, he grew more and more poisoned by it. This is a very real warning for us as we live in 21st century America. Because like Amelia pointed out the other day, we live like kings and queens here. We do. We can, if we want to make more money, we can go make more money. If we want to do more things... Oh. Ah, you didn't pull your gun out? Wow. (laughs) Man, I thought we had the fuzz here. I thought we could take care of this. We need to name our mouse. Daniel, we need to name him. Gus Gus, he's always eating our snacks. That's why we put the snacks in the bins. Ridiculous. I was wondering what was happening over there. <laughs> oh, okay. Got to keep us on our toes. 
It's okay. So, uh, Daniel, take care of him. Yeah. Okay, I did kill a mouse this last week. It was not good. Um, okay, let's talk about these gods that, he, that, that Solomon was chasing. Okay, so these, uh, these wives, these women, right? So part of their, their pagan worship was, uh, were sexual acts, right? So let's talk about these gods. Ashtoreth was the goddess of the Sidonians, okay? So the Sidonian goddess, um, she was the goddess of fertility and war. She was known as the lover of the god of Baal. Um, a common mode of worship for her was for women to sacrifice their hair or their virginity to her. Uh, her worship practices were described by the church fathers um, as obscene. According to the historian Herodotus, in Babylon, every woman was required at least once in her life to offer herself to Ashtoreth in her temple. So imagine this, the women that Solomon was chasing, they were, uh, they were driven by an unhealthy understanding of the sexual relationship between a husband and a wife. All of the things that we read about in Song of Solomon, all of the ways that that reflects God's relationship with us and the, and the proper relationship between a husband and a wife to each other sexually, they perverted all of that. Milcom, the abhorrent idol of the Ammonites. Some scholars believe that Milcom is the patron god of the royal house of the Ammonites. Um, he is the Ammonite version of the god Molech uh, of the Moabs. Chemosh, um, the, the god of Moab, was the primary god of the Moabites and a rival of the Hebrew god Yahweh. Chemosh was known as a god of war and provision. Some scholars consider him the Moabite version of Molech. The ancient historian Eusebius quote, uh, equated him, I saw him just scurry right there, equated him with the Greek god of war, Ares. Uh, as with other gods of the region, human or child sacrifice was commonly held as a staple of worship. He was also considered in some circles as the god of the afterlife. So when Molech um, and Chemish, whenever they would worship him, let me describe this to you. So you have one side over here where you're having sex with pagan prostitutes in the temple. Um, all of the obvious personal hygiene problems there. But then you also have this, this the, the, the belief was that if you give up your first child, the child that opened your womb, that the pagan gods would bless you. And so they would kill the child. But they wouldn't just kill the child by cutting its throat or breaking its neck. They would sacrifice them by fire. So they would build a large fire and they would either throw the child into the fire, they called it baptism by fire, perversion of things that we know in Scripture, or they would have a statue of the god Molech or uh, Chemosh, and the statue would be holding a large iron basin. That basin would be over the fire and would be, would be heated to a red-hot temperature, and then the child would be placed naked in that vessel to be cooked alive. Consider this, okay? You have, the, you have the God of Israel, Yahweh, who says, in order for you to be atoned for your sin, you must give up the firstborn perfect lamb, livestock, to me as a substitute. 
But to the pagan gods, the pagan god says, no, no, you need to give up your firstborn child. So what started happening in Israel? Yahweh started to be treated like these other gods. And so if you're going to sacrifice the best to Yahweh, why wouldn't Yahweh want the best, which is my firstborn child? And so the people of Israel started to sacrifice their own children to Yahweh, not just to these pagan gods, but they would sacrifice their children, the gifts of God, to the God of the universe. This is the most detestable perversion. Because what what God's word tells us in Psalm 139 is that every life has been uniquely, divinely positioned and created, spun into existence, and all of their days are numbered. So Solomon, the one that that God had placed in a position of authority, we've read in Ecclesiastes, I don't know how many times, that if you've been placed in a position of influence, you've you've been placed there to reflect what God is doing in the world as the gospel through you. So God positions Solomon in a position of influence, and he has twisted his own mind and twisted his own heart to where now he has convinced the people of Israel to not only practice pagan divination and having sexual intercourse and sexual perversion with unclean people in unclean environments, perverting what God intended for marriage to be, a reflection of his love with humanity. And now they're sacrificing their own children, not just to pagan gods in ignorance. They are sacrificing their own children to Yahweh himself. Molech was a Moabite god, and he was worshipped by sacrificing the firstborn child. This worship was evil because it not only killed children by fire, but it perverted the worship of the Jews. Instead of atoning, atonement being done within the limitations of the Mosaic law, children were offered as sacrifices to God. The mode of the sacrifice was either by placing the infant directly in a fire or roasting them in a hot metal plate. Solomon was not just tempted and drawn away. He willfully turned his heart to God, away from God. Look at how this continues. So Solomon is judged for this. Verses 9 through 13. Now the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not observe what the Lord had commanded. So the Lord said to Solomon, because you have done this and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David, but I will tear it out of your hand for your son, uh, the hand of your son. However, I will not tear it away for all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. A couple things about this part is that God was angry with Solomon because he turned his heart away from him in spite of God appearing to him twice. Think about that. Solomon has had incredible experiences with God. He has talked to God face to face twice in his lifetime. When he dedicated his temple, the Spirit of God, as Solomon is, is praying in front of all the people of Israel, the Spirit of God comes from heaven like fire and smoke and fills the temple. So much so that the, that the Levites can't, do, can't carry out their, their work. So the people have to leave the temple. The amazing thing that God's done in his life, and yet he turns his heart away from God. In his punishment, he tells him that he's going to take the kingdom from him and his family, but he graciously says that he's not going to do it until he died. What's interesting here is that in the Bible, there is no account of Solomon repenting. 
there is no account of Solomon repenting. Notice that God says, I'm going to, I'm going to maintain, not just, I'm going to maintain one tribe in the city of Jerusalem, not for you, Solomon, because you've been faithful and because you have repented at the end of your life. He says, I'm going to set aside one, one tribe and one city because of your father, because of his faithfulness, because of his repentance heart, repentant heart. And also what God is saying is that I made David a promise that through him, all of the world would be blessed through the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who would be born of a virgin that we're celebrating next week. God sets aside the tribe of Judah on purpose to protect his covenant with the world in spite of Solomon's rebellion. So God finishes his punishment. He goes on. Look at verse 14. He's going to raise a series of adversaries. We don't have time to get into all these guys today, but um, starting in verse 14, he says, Then the Lord raised up an adversary to Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. He was of the royal line of Edom. For it came about when David was in Edom, and Joab, the commander of the army, had gone up to bury the slain and had struck down every male in Edom. For Joab and and all Israel stayed there six months until he had cut off every male in Edom that Hadad fled to Egypt, he and certain Edomites of his father's servants with him. While Hadad was a young boy, they arose from Midian and came to Paran, and they took men with them from Paran and came to, to Egypt, to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who gave him a house and assigned him food and gave him land. Now Hadad found great favor before Pharaoh, so that he gave him in marriage the sister of his own wife, the sister of Topanes, the queen. The sister of Topanes bore the, his son, Genubath, uh, whom Topanes weaned in Pharaoh's house. And Genubath was in Pharaoh's house among the sons of Pharaoh. But when Hadad heard in Egypt that David slept with his fathers and that Joab, the commander of the army, was dead, Hadad said to Pharaoh, send me away that I may go to my own country. Then Pharaoh said to him, but what have you lacked with me? And behold, you are seeking to go to your own country. And he answered, nothing. Nevertheless, you must surely let me go. So this guy is the, uh, he is the heir apparent to the Edomites. So when David was alive, he went in and he conquered, he conquered Edom. This guy, this prince of Edom, ran away and he fled to Egypt in hiding because he knew that being of royal blood, he was a, he was a liability for David and he probably was going to get killed. So he, so he runs to Egypt, he flees to Egypt and he hides. He, gets, he uh, starts a family there, he grows up, he has, uh, he has children and when he finds out that David is dead and his general is dead, Joab, he says, it's time for me to go back. So we see him at the end of Solomon's life come back on the scene to start taking land back from the Israelites. One more thing. Look at verse 23. He says, God also raised up another adversary to him, Razan, the son of Iliad, who had fled from his lord Hadadezer, king of Zodab, or Zobah, he gathered men to himself and became leader of a marauding band after David slew them of Zobah, and they went to Damascus and stayed there and reigned in Damascus. So, uh, so there was an adversary to Israel all the days of Solomon, along with the evil of Hadad did, uh, and he abhorred Israel and reigned over Aram. Then Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, so Jeroboam was Solomon's general. Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, an Ephraimite of Zerudah, Easy for you to say. Solomon's servant, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow, also rebelled against the king. Now this was the reason why he rebelled against the king. Solomon built the Milo and closed up the breach of the city of his father David. 
Now the man Jeroboam was a valiant warrior, and when Solomon saw that the young man was industrious, he appointed him over all the forced labor of the house of Joseph. It came about at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem that the prophet Ahijah, the the Shilonite, found him on the road. Now Ahijah had uh, had clothed himself with a new cloak, and both of them were alone in the field. Then Ahijah took hold of the new cloak which was on him and tore it into twelve pieces. He said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and give you ten tribes. But he will have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel. Because they have forsaken me and have worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of Moab, Milcom, the god of the sons of Ammon, and they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight and observing my statutes and my ordinances as his father David did. Nevertheless, I will take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I will make him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of my servant David, whom I chose, who I observed, my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom from his son's hand and give it to you, even ten, ten tribes. But to this uh, son I will give one tribe, that my servant David may have a lamp always before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen for myself to put my name. I will take you, and you shall reign over whatever you desire, and you shall be king over Israel. Then it will be that if you will listen to all that I have commanded you and walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight by observing my statutes and my commandments, as my servant David did, then I will be with you and build you an enduring house as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. Thus I will afflict the descendants of David for this, but not always." Solomon sought therefore to put Jeroboam to death, but Jeroboam arose and fled to Egypt, to Shishak, king of Egypt, and he was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. So, that's a lot. But these are three prominent people that end up, um, at the end of Solomon's life, terrorizing his reign. And some things that have happened in, that, that aren't in the biblical text, we can see this at the first part of chapter 12, is that Solomon, by the time he gets to the end of his life, the money starts to dry up. The favor starts to dry up. And he gets used to this lavish lifestyle. So what he does is he begins to tax the people. To the point to where when his son, Rehoboam, takes over, the people are pleading with him to relieve their taxes because it's affecting their way of life. Solomon has leveraged himself to debt in every way. He gets used to having all this stuff around him to the point that some scholars actually document that in Hebrew history um, that's external to the Bible, that Solomon has begun selling Hebrew cities to cover his debts. So we see a man who is chasing pleasure, he's chasing riches, he's chasing all of these things and he gets wrapped up and that becomes his identity to the point to where he starts to not only pervert the worship in the eternal destination of his people, but he then starts to sell them and sell his, his, the, the property of, of the nation of Israel, this land that God gave them to cover his own personal debts. That's a whole other lesson in and of itself. So going back to this idea of Solomon hunched over his parchment with his quill. We have an old man with a gray beard and gray hair. Wrinkles at his eyes. His eyes are beginning to fail. And he looks back on his life the decisions that he's made. And he writes these words. The conclusion, even when everything has been heard, this is it. 
Fear God and keep His commandments, for this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it's good or evil. Okay, consider this in, in respect to the, to the human condition. Now, it would be foolish for us to take our own lives and put them in, in Solomon's situation and think, okay, well, what would I do if I was in Solomon's situation? I'm different than him, right? And, and reading ourselves into the text. But this does tell us a couple of things. It tells us, number one, that God is faithful. God kept his end of the bargain. God kept his end of the covenant. He said, as long as you follow my commandments, as long as you dedicate yourself to being a person who is driven by my word, I will be with you. I will take care of you. I will give you good things. Jesus says that you're us as human fathers. We know how to give good gifts to our children. How much more our Heavenly Father, who loves us so much. He says, if you will do this one thing, I will make you greater than your father David. But Solomon, though, in his own humanity and weakness, he threw all of that away because he got distracted by the pleasantries of this world. He is, in every aspect, this, the, the, the seed that got planted and was choked out by thorns, the cares of this life. It's a warning for us, not only that um, God keeps his word on the good side, but God also keeps his word on the other side too in our rebellion. That if we turn from him, if we rebel against him, if we enjoy and start worshiping the creature rather than the creator, we start chasing the gift rather than the gift giver, we will find ourselves at the end of our lives looking back surrounded by stuff, but missing the most important thing, which is a relationship with God. As we make decisions about our family, about our lives, it's important for us to remember these things, that, that God is faithful. He's not just faithful in the good things. Faithful means he's consistent, always. And just as he is consistent always, if we obey his word to watch over us and give us good things, and to, and to walk with us and to give us the richness of his relationship. He is also faithful. He is also consistent. And when we walk in rebellion to him, we will face consequences. We will. As we make decisions in our lives, we have to remember, especially as we raise our families, we have to live a certain way. Not because we are better than anybody else, but because God has told us to do that. One of the things that has been on my mind a lot lately, the last several weeks, is next, next year um, for our REACH uh, Young Adult Ministry, we're going to do the Year of the Servant. I've been spending a lot of time in 1 Timothy. In the very first verse of 1 Timothy, Paul says, Paul, by the commandment of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that word stuck out, stood out to me because Paul says, God literally told me to write you this letter. And so I'm doing it in obedience. And something that God has really pressed on me is, is that these are not suggestions. These are commandments. We have the mindset in our generation that somehow God says stuff in his word and it's like, okay, well, you know, I'll get to that when I can or when I'm strong enough, I'll do it. But a commandment is a commandment. Things that are important because we don't know how to live. One of the things that is um, a challenge for us is we've got uh, our youngest, Ava, is going to go into high school next year. She's going to be in the high school band, the Pride, next year, right? For those of you who have been in band, you understand that this is really expensive, like crazy expensive. And our band expenses are going to double next year. And so I was sitting that we were laying there in bed 
and I was doing our budget for next year and trying to work things out. And I was, I was just telling Lindsay, I was like, this is a little overwhelming to think about all this. And because we made the commitment 17 years ago that we were going to be a one income home, that she was going to be available to be there for our children. And that I was going to do whatever it took to make sure that we had the resources that we need to move forward. And so as a result, God has been faithful to teach us the truth of Matthew chapter six. And so I'm sitting there talking to her about all these things and she's like, okay. So we can talk, to, talk about Matthew six with everybody else, but when it comes to us, I was like, you right. <laughs> you right. And so I had to get up and spend some time in the Word and, and reread Matthew 6 and say he does keep his promises. He is faithful. Um, here's my encouragement to you. As you think about your life, as you think about your marriages, the direction of your family, I want to encourage you to be faithful, to be obedient to what God has told you to do. Stick with it. Don't chase all the pretty things, all the fancy, flashy things of our culture. Don't chase the expensive things that you think are going to bring you comfort and joy. There's only one thing that will do that, and that is your relationship, your close walk with Christ. And you have to be in this together, both of you, husband and wife. You have to be relentless at reminding each other. God's word says this. I had a moment this week, Lindsay had a moment last week where we both had to, we, she was in a moment of weakness, I was in a moment of weakness, and in those moments, we were able to, to encourage each other. What does the word say? Let's talk about the word. I want to encourage you to build your families on the word. Build your relationship on the word. When one of you is worried and the other one is confident, you confident ones remind them of what the word says. Practically live it out. And when the roles are reversed the next day, do the same thing again. We have to build our families on the word. Because if we don't, the consequence is that we're going to get to the end and we're going to look back and we realize, oh my goodness, we missed it. We missed it. Most people live their whole lives and they never know what it's really like to chase Jesus. We have a divine privilege to be able to do that. And let Solomon be an example, not just of how dangerous it is to chase pleasure, but how faithful God is, both in the good and in the, in the judgment. We have to be people who are, who have made the conscious decision before the battle comes who we will be. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like and subscribe to our content. We are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Married Now What podcast is a ministry of Evergreen Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It is meant to be a resource for in-depth Bible study for couples striving to build their lives on the truth of God's Word. For more information and additional lessons, please visit our website, evergreenbc.org.